six or seven days goes by quickly when you look back, doesn't it? <clears throat> it's been so touching for me to get to meet with many of you and hear about your practice and your experience. It's, uh, somehow I, I just continue to feel amazed by uh, the power of this practice. It's so simple just to show up. You know, we come to a retreat and we put down our roles and duties and responsibilities in the world and we form this little community for a period of time. You know, a community that's based on certain values values of kindness and respect and support and safety. And we create the conditions to slow down. <laughs> let things fall, you know, let, let all of the junk kind of just settle out and, and look inside. Mm. So we use these forms of sitting and walking and noticing the breath and feeling our sensations to develop these qualities of mind, stability and clarity, kindness and patience. And to, to learn as much as we can about ourselves, about our own minds and hearts, about what it is to be human to be alive. And it's, uh, it's so astonishing just what can be seen, what can be known when we, when we have the conditions to slow down and look inside. And um, for, for, for many of you, there have been moments of different kinds of insight, understanding or shift, a shift in your perspective on something or, you know, the heart opening in a different way. Sometimes very pleasant experiences, sometimes difficult experiences that still have a profound meaning for us can be very powerful experiences that arise. One of the things that I've come to understand uh, since I've been practicing is that those insights are often just the beginning. You know, we come to practice and we think that we're going to have this, you know, big explosion or that the heart's going to be open or going to see the true nature of reality and you know, then everything in my life will be better. <laughs> All of my problems will go away and my relationships will be peaceful and happy and I'll never blow up at someone again. And yeah, <laughs> maybe, hopefully, <laughs> but often it takes a little bit more work. So the insight is often the beginning. It's the beginning of the transformation. It needs to be applied. So we need to take what we've learned and then integrate it into our life. So this Dharma, this, this path is meant to be lived. It's not something that we just do here on retreat. And the, the insight, the awakening that this practice supports is not a thing. It's not an experience. It's a lived understanding. It's, it's a way of being that gets into our bones. It's like, uh, it's like understanding the law of gravity. You know, if I drop this watch, how many people think it's going to, sorry, if I let go of this watch, how many people think it's going to stay where it is? Anyone think it's going to float up? We, we're not surprised when that happens. 
we understand the law of gravity. So if we let go of something at a height, we understand that it falls. So we've been studying these four noble truths, these four laws of this plane, this realm of existence, that when we cling, we suffer. When we let go, the suffering ceases. So we come to know, we come to understand this relationship as deeply and intimately as we know and understand the law of gravity so that we're not surprised, so that we're not shocked, embarrassed, humiliated when things go, quote, wrong. When there's loss, when there's pain, when there's challenge, we go, oh yeah, that's part of being human. That's what it is to be alive. So we train ourselves in this capacity to see clearly and to let go so that we can come to know for ourselves how we're interfering with the flow of life, how we create friction for ourselves and others by, by resisting or manipulating or trying to control things. And so we learn to let go so we can get out of our own way, so we can let life move through us and express itself fully, completely, authentically. So letting go doesn't mean that we don't act. It doesn't mean that we're not engaged or involved in our lives. So we have to take whatever understanding comes in our practice and bring it into the world. We, ha we apply it to our life so that it actually informs our choices and our actions. And we continue to investigate. We, we test it out and we hone our understanding. We investigate the continue to explore these four noble truths in our own experience every day. So these Four Noble Truths are meant to be applied in our life, not just on retreat. Again, this, this practice is, is a way of life. It's a way of, of looking and, and relating to experience, a way of acting and being in the world. So when, when suffering arises, when there's stress or difficulty, that which is hard to bear, when that comes our way, can we notice it? Can we inclu include it, be willing to come close to it and try to understand it, to turn towards it and include those challenges rather than turning away, rather than trying to avoid them? We're looking for someone to blame in ourselves and, and beyond ourselves. Suffering is not just personal. It's something that occurs in our relationships. Can we include that rather than pretending it's not happening? It's in our all, all riddles, our communities and society is riddled with suffering, real intense suffering, war and famine and poverty, you know, hatred and, and, and discrimination. So can we include that? Can we turn towards it and try to understand it to see how am I, how am I relating to this? Am I resisting it, pretending it's not there? Have I cultivated enough well-being, enough balance inside to be able to meet the suffering and choose how I engage? One of my favorite quotes from the great American writer James Baldwin, he said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. He understood something about this first noble truth, 
We have to come into contact with suffering in order for there to be any possibility of healing, of peace in our own hearts, in our relationships, or in our world. And then the second noble truth, can we use this as a template to see, okay, what's this resting on? What are the causes, what are the conditions for this suffering to arise? In myself, where am I holding on? Where am I resisting? What ideas or expectations do I have about how things should be? That's creating the tension with the way things are. In our relationships, what are the factors? What are the different conditions that, that lead to this difficulty? You know, what have I contributed? What's my role? What's my part in this? What does it mean to let go? Not to give up on ourselves or our needs, but to let go, to not be contracted and tight, fixated, obsessed to have a sense of spaciousness with the situation. And on the collective level, what are the causes and conditions to look beyond the surface to the deeper factors to see things through this lens of conditionality? That nothing exists in a vacuum. Everything is a constellation of factors coming together. So I just published an article about the school shooting in Florida looking at, talking about the fact that in all the school shootings, we never talk about the gender of the shooters. It's all young men. Ever notice that? Why? What is it about our society, the roles that we assign to the different rigid gender structure we have that says it's okay to feel this way if you're identified as a man, and it's okay to feel this way if you're identified as a woman, and it only gives us these options of self-identity and the, and the things that we're permitted to feel, and what would it be like if the young men in our society were encouraged to feel their vulnerability, to express their loneliness or their pain? So looking deeper, what are, the, what are all of the conditions And then to pay attention to the cessation, to see how stress and suffering isn't constant. It comes and it goes. And this, this ending of suffering is something for us each individually to realize, to know directly in our own experience. It's not something that we fantasize about in the future, one day when you know, suffering will end. It's something that we can see for ourselves in the moment how Gil was saying a couple days ago, how suffering arises and ceases, how it's inconstant. And are we there? Are we present enough to see its ending, to know that? And then the fourth truth, which is what I want to focus on this afternoon, which is the path. the path of practice that the Buddha offered, which is to be cultivated. So this is interesting. We talk a lot in this practice, particularly here in the West, about relaxing and receiving, letting be. There's also some doing involved. You know, the path is meant to be cultivated. Anyone who's grown a garden knows that's hard work to grow a garden. You don't just throw some seeds out and say, oh, maybe they'll grow. <laughs> you know, you have to prepare the soil, you have to weed, you have to make sure it has enough fertilizer. So this path this is something that we engage with. We have to, we cultivate it in the way that we live. It's something that we do. And the, the Eightfold Path is like, a, it's like a map. It's the Buddha's instructions for realizing our potential as human beings and contributing to 
society in a meaningful way. And like any map, like any set of instructions, it's not the terrain. If we want to arrive at the destination, we need to take the journey. The path is meant to be traveled. We have to walk it. The Buddha talked about the Eightfold Path as discovering an ancient trail that leads through the jungle, a path that's been there. And so you can imagine if you're lost in a jungle, foliage and vegetation everywhere, no bearings. Maybe you can't even see the sun. There's so much. The canopy is so dense. And then you feel something under your feet. You feel, a, you feel a flat stone and you brush away the moss and the grass and you see that it's a path. That there's a path here. And you keep clearing and you see it's not just one stone. It's, it's three, it's four. It goes somewhere. So this is what we've discovered. This is what this practice offers the path to follow. So I grew up on the East Coast in New Jersey, the suburbs outside of New York. And um, then in the late 70s and 80s, we had four seasons that were pretty predictable. <laughs> it's, it's been in the 70s in Jersey recently and now it's snowing, so the weather's, weather systems have gotten out of whack with everything that humans are doing on the planet. But when I was growing up, the winters were cold <laughs> and long, and the summers were hot and humid, and fall was beautiful and crisp, and the leaves all changed colors. And um, I would walk to school every day. So middle school, I walked about half a mile to school. High school, about a mile and a quarter every day walk to school. Sometimes I'd ride my bike. Even the winter in the snow, walk to school. And so I didn't know it at the time, but I look back and it was so peaceful. Just walking, nothing to do, you know. Just cut through the yard behind this one house and take the same route every day. Hear the birds, chickadees, and be outside in the weather. We rarely walk any place these days. Get in a car, we take Uber, Lyft, get in a cab, hop on a plane. We have these, our devices, the touch of a button, whatever we want. You know, order food right to your house if you live in a city. Everything's quick, instant, fast, right away. So you look at the early texts, so a lot of nature imagery. Buddha's always talking about nature. He talks about the fulfilling the qualities in the path like, like rain filling the crannies and gullies, developing into rivulets and then into a stream and then from streams into a river, from the river into the ocean. Things in nature take time. They don't happen overnight, rarely. Natural process is slow, it's like walking. You walk somewhere, it takes time. It's not like getting on a plane and five hours later you're in New York. I'm kind of dazed, right? But so from one perspective, this path takes time. We have to do the work. We have to be willing to walk, <coughs> to traverse the terrain. This is a from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who wrote The Little Prince. It's from another book of his called Wind, Sand, and Stars. He wrote, It is idle, having planted an acorn in the morning, to expect that afternoon to sit in the shade of an oak. So we take our instant gratification culture, this touchscreen culture, we come to spiritual practice, and we want to sit in the shade of an oak that afternoon, right? Give it to me. Give me the insight. Show me emptiness. Open my heart. I'm ready. Come on, I've been sitting for half an hour. 
right? So when I was in seventh grade, um, I had a science teacher named Mrs. Cecilia. This is a short, fiery little woman. She loved science. And um, she gave us a project to do one spring. I still remember it. She asked us to find a tree. This was at the end of winter, before spring came. And we had to observe the tree every day. Go out and look at it and draw. We had to draw uh, the changes that we saw in the tree from day to day, from week to week, from winter into spring. So seventh grade, I was, I don't know, about 12. Oh, I knew about spring and <laughs> the leaves come out again, you know, 12 years old, it's no big deal. But I never actually looked closely. So I drew, and, and drawing, the, the, the assignment to draw it, was brilliant to actually not just look at it, but to draw it. Because you really have to look closely to draw something. You have to study it and observe it. So first is just this kind of dead looking branch. And then pretty soon this tiny little green thing just poking out of the end. And then this green thing, from one little green thing, then there are two. And then there are three, all kind of tightly together. And then it's five, this little kind of jeweled bud appearing on the branch, and then a few of them, and then watching it day by day, seeing it change, and then slowly it starts to open. And just like this miraculous thing, this like green iridescent fabric starts to unfold. So delicate, wrinkled and small, and then slowly it gets bigger, and this, this leaf emerging from this seemingly dead brown stick. So delicate, so thin, translucent at first, and then getting thicker and growing until it's a full, big maple leaf. It's a little sapling right outside the, on the side of the house where I grew up. I was studying. Walking this path takes time. The factors grow slowly. It's a natural, but it's a natural process, like Jill was saying yesterday. For one who is uh, free from remorse, there's no need for an act of will. You know, let my heart be happy. It's a, it's a natural law. I remember when I was um, first practicing in India with one of my first teachers, Anagarika Manindraji. Um, who's kind of a grandfather figner, figure for the Vipassana world here in the West. He trained Joseph and uh, Sharon, and he was one of the first teachers to bring uh, the Dharma back from India, from Burma into India together with Goenka, and also started training Westerners. I, I got to connect with him at the very end of his life when he was in his 80s. Now I had so many questions, asking him so many questions, just question after question after question and wanting to know, am I making progress and is this happening? And, you know, and asking him, am I on the path? Am I on the path? At some point he got a little bit, not frustrated, but he kind of ch he chided me. He said, he said, you're so concerned, always checking, checking. You take one step and you stop and look, did I take a step? Did I take a step? Am I walking? Am I on the path? He said, just walk, just practice. <laughs> So how do we walk? How do we practice this path? How do we take it out into the world? So these are the Buddha's instructions for the Eightfold Path. This training, this map that's been offered. And each of these factors of the Eightfold Path, which I'll, see how much time we have, I'll, mention, I'll try to mention all of them, um, begins with this word in Pali, Samma, Samma Ditti translated as right view, samma sankapa, right thought or right intention, samma. It's an interesting word. It's translated as right. I um, I think there are different levels to the meaning of this word samma. So it does mean 
right, apparently the most common usage of the word in the text. So you look at the the language is right and wrong. It's it's paired. I don't uh, Micha I think is wrong. So you know like correct incorrect. So this is one one way of understanding the word right mindfulness, right effort, right concentration. If you look at the the etymology of the word samma, it's related to the word summit from samma through through the through the ages we get summit. So from there for me I, there's an echo of something that's like the pinnacle, the highest. It's also related to the word summary. And from that comes the sense of complete or whole, which is where sometimes you see the translation mature, a mature view, mature understanding, or whole, you know, whole, complete mindfulness. I also, and then for me, I also come back to the sense of right and wrong. It does have an ethical dimension to say that, you know, we can use mindfulness to cause harm. You know, a thief has a lot of mindfulness and concentration. Mind needs to be clear to carry out something like that. So it is, it's imbued with an ethical component. But I think that also it means right. So if you ask me, how do I get down to the beach? and I point you to the east, and I say, go that way, you're going in the wrong direction. You're not going to reach the sand, you're not going to reach the Pacific Ocean. If you walk long enough, you might get to the Atlantic Ocean, but right? it's just the wrong direction. So I like to think of right, this sama, this word right, as it's the right direction to go if you're interested in ending suffering. This is the right view to have if you're interested in awakening. This is the right intention to have if you're interested in freedom. So all of these different uh, nuances to this word right, complete, whole. So the Eightfold Path is often summarized as having three kind of categories of training, wisdom, ethics, or virtue and meditation. And I like to think of these as answering three basic questions. What do we do? Why do we do it? And how do we do it? So the training in wisdom answers the question, why do we do stuff? How are we looking at things and where are we coming from? The training in ethics answers the question, what do we do? What are, what are the actual actions and choices that we make in life? Have some guidance, some guidance, some structure for that. The training in meditation answers the question, how do we do it? What's the quality of presence, the quality that we bring to the very activities that we're engaged with? So I'd like to talk some more about each of these, these instructions that the Buddha offered for how to live, uh, live this path. So the training in wisdom is about seeing in a certain way and about where we come from, the quality of our uh, heart or awareness. And the first aspect is right view. And they're different, they're di right view, if you, if you, if you study, is, it's kind of all encompassing, it's like a uh, like it's like the teachings are like a fractal. You look at any one part, and then you realize you go into it, and it contains all of the other parts. But but some of the key components of right view. There's one level of right view that's about our relative world, world of our relationships and roles and responsibilities. It talks about understanding that our actions have effects. Understanding that the things we do in life matter. They have effects on ourselves and others, and that we have to live with the results of our actions. And each of us has lived long enough to know that, to know that when we cause harm, we have to carry that in some way. We feel that. When we do good, we feel that. It leaves a residue, an impact on our heart, and it has an impact on those around us. 
So this understanding of, of the impact of our actions, this kind of view, it's about honoring, honoring the specifics of our life, honoring our relationships, recognizing that we have a certain role, we have certain relationships, you know, we have parents and siblings or children, and taking care in those, in those relationships. And it's through handling the specifics of our life carefully, really bringing attention to our choices and relationships and actions. It's by being in our sense of identity and our roles in our particular community and historical moment fully that we come to understand and see the deeper truths of right view, the Four Noble Truths, the three characteristics of existence, that everything's changing, that it can't bring uh, some, like some lasting, complete happiness, and that things don't exist independently that we can't control them. They're always, they're always changing and they're not under our control. So we see, we, we, this, is a, this is the deeper aspect of right view, see, seeing through the lens of the Four Noble Truths and seeing the nature of things, their nature to change, and everything that that entails in terms of unsatisfactoriness and not being solid or stable. This is seeing with wisdom, with right view. And having, the, having these views, this is something that we need to practice, to apply, to actually look at things through this lens in our life, continually to examine and contemplate them. And it's like being oriented in the right direction. If you've got a map and it's oriented in the wrong direction, you know, it's hit or miss if you're going to end up where you want to be. So right view is making sure that we're looking at things in a way that's conducive to awakening and to freedom, knowing which way we're headed. <clears throat> the next factor of this training in wisdom is about our thoughts and intentions, where we're coming from inside. And Buddha identified three core intentions that he recommended we cultivate and strengthen in our lives. Kindness, compassion, and renunciation. Very, very freeing intentions when, you, when we start to come to know and experience what they are for ourselves. This is about becoming aware of what's driving our life. What are the qualities that motivate us to speak and think and act? What are the values that animate our choices? And these intentions grow naturally out of an understanding of the Four Noble Truths. So in oneself, when we understand suffering, its cause and its end, when we understand that, we understand the impermanent nature of things, that they're changing, the result is renunciation, is simplicity, letting go, non-accumulation. And this goes against the whole current of our culture and society. When we understand suffering and its cause and its end, when we understand the vulnerability of life, then the result in relation to others is kindness and compassion. We see that that's the only response that makes sense. So this is the training in wisdom. And to listen, to reflect, to consider these perspectives, to discuss them with good friends on the path, to study and explore, and to keep looking in this way and examining. The training in virtue, the training in ethics, is about what we do. And this is about wholeness. Training in ethics and in the Dharma isn't about um, moralistic judgment. It's about being happy. <laughs> it's about recognizing what actually brings happiness and making our hearts whole. 
recognizing that when we when we act in ways that cause harm to ourselves and others it it kind of it fractures us we, we become divided against ourselves in some way so it's about recognizing what's for our own benefit what's for the benefit of others and so the buddha breaks this down into three different categories and the first interestingly enough right after wisdom the first thing the Buddha says is pay attention to what you say. Watch your words, write speech. I've devoted a lot of time to this, to the study and practice of right speech. It's a fascinating area because our words shape our consciousness. They shape how we experience ourselves and others and our life. So can we bring awareness to our speech. Can we be aware that we are speaking? <laughs> That's the most basic level of right speech, is just to know that you're speaking when you open your mouth. To know that we're listening when someone is speaking to us. And then to begin to look more deeply at what we say and why we say it and where it comes from. The teachings on right speech are this very flexible matrix of all of these different factors that help to enhance the wholesome qualities in our hearts and minds. Looking at speaking in ways that are truthful, that are kind, that are useful, that are appropriate to the context and timely. And so this is a whole domain of practice. When you take on right speech as part of your contemplative practice, many hours of practice a day, because most of us are communicating all day long. We're speaking, we're reading, we're writing, we're texting, emailing. Even thinking how we talk to ourselves becomes part of our practice. There's a whole very uh, rich domain of cultivation in looking at our speech. And then exploring the things that we do, our livelihood, the way that we earn a living, and being clear about the choices we make, understanding that we live in an interconnected world, that everything we do affects everything else. And so as much as possible to make choices that, that, that don't cause harm. So, you know, in our living, are we profiting from uh, harming the planet or harming other beings? And, uh, This, this, is a, this is a practice. It starts at one level and then it goes very deep. And we each, each of us in the world that we live in today, I think, has to grapple with very difficult questions about what it is to be alive on the planet. You know, you can't... Uh, just participating in, in the economy means that we're contributing to harm in some way, often, in terms of the level, the radical level of interconnectedness. So we do our best, and it's again, it's that willingness to turn towards, to be honest, to look at things closely. And the results of, of this training in ethics is, is a sense of integrity. I like the word integrity for sila, not as necessarily as a translation, but as an aspect of it, that sense of wholeness. I thought that we can, when you wake up in the morning, you can look in the mirror and feel good about oneself. That's sila. And this is, this is the invitation of this path. And it's not that we don't make mistakes, you know, but that we learn, that we're committed to learning from our mistakes. It's a training. It's not, it's not that we start out perfect. And then the last dimension of the Eightfold Path, the last training, is training the mind, samadhi. Sila, Samadhi, Panya, training the mind, training in meditation. So Jill spoke yesterday about right effort in the context of our meditation retreat, looking at how, how much energy we apply, how much effort we apply. But this is very true in our day-to-day -day life as well. What qualities are we cultivating? Right effort is about crafting, shaping our heart and our mind. 
So looking and noticing the good qualities that are present in us. Really appreciating the good that we do. And each of us does a lot of good. Every human being, there's good inside us. But we overlook it. We often don't receive the benefit of it. This is very important. The Buddha talked a lot about reflecting on one's own goodness. This brightens the heart, it uplifts us, and it strengthens those qualities. It actually makes them stronger. So not overlooking the good qualities that are already present. And then aspiring, looking at those around us who we admire and saying, what else could I cultivate? Where could I grow in goodness? What else can I manifest in my life? These are things like gratitude and patience, generosity, kindness, honesty, simplicity, all the beautiful uh, potentials that we have as human beings, these qualities that we can experience and actually strengthen in ourselves. And then the other side, again, taking delight in the harm that we're not causing, noticing the, noticing the unwholesome uh, aspects of our mind that, that we don't get lost in. Unwholesome meaning that it causes harm for ourselves or others. You know? So if you're sober, take joy in that. If you don't abuse people in your life verbally or physically, that's a really good thing. Not everyone has, you know, not everyone's in that space. Some people are in so much pain, so confused that they express themselves in ways that's, that are abusive, that cause real harm. So if that's not your, if, if you're not caught in that, to really notice that. And it's not that we never get angry or say something hurtful, but to, but to notice the times that, that we're not and appreciate that. And then to be honest, you know, the, the ways in which we are causing harm or the, the qualities in, in, inside us that we realize, you know, this is isn't so good. I could do better, you know, I could do better than this. To be real about that, not to beat ourselves up, but to be real about it, to, to face it, say, okay, I want to address this. I want to change this. I'm going to take steps to do that. You know, if we have, if we have an addiction problem, own it. All right. I don't want to live in this way. I'm going to get help. You know, if we have a problem with anger, own it. Okay. This isn't, it's, this isn't, this isn't who I am. It's just a pattern. It's just a way that I've learned. I can unlearn it. It'll take time. It'll take support. So this is right effort, shaping our mind, looking honestly at what's here, appreciating the good, being real about that which is challenging and difficult, and uh, crafting it. And the last two factors in training our mind are mindfulness and concentration. So we talk a lot about these in formal meditation practice, but these are qualities to live by. Mindfulness is about being aware. Somebody asked, can I be mindful while driving? Absolutely. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Please be mindful while driving. <laughs> Most of the people on the road are not being mindful when driving. They're looking at their phone. They're thinking, right? Takes a lot of restraint to not look at one's phone when driving. Turn it off. Put it down, you know. Concentration. Having a mind that's, that's stable when we're doing something, to do it completely, to give it our full attention, rather than being fragmented, always multitasking. So here on retreat, we break things down, we make them really simple. When you're walking, just walk. When you're sitting, sit. When we're eating, eat. When you're sweeping or chopping or cleaning, sweep, chop, clean. Why? We're learning how to live. We're learning how to be wholeheartedly present with our life, with each activity. We're shaping our mind. 
So this aspect of effort, mindfulness, and concentration is about how we do things. What is the quality of awareness, the quality of our mind that we bring to the activities and relationships of our life? So walking this, this path is like, it's like learning a craft. To learn a craft takes time. It's a craft. Some might say it's a it's a high a, the highest craft. It's the craft of the heart. Learning how to be fully human. This mind and body is our instrument, and we're learning how to play it. So it takes patience to walk a distance. You have to pace yourself. We need to have trust. We need to have to have trust that the map is accurate, that we're headed in the right direction. So we need to have a sense of aspiration that I'm interested in arriving at the goal. We need to have confidence in our own ability. So I've got I've got two feet, I can walk. I've got a bag with gear, I've got some tools, I can make this journey. We need to trust the sincerity of our intention and also the, the process, the lawfulness of the process. If you show up, if we pay attention and look, it's inevitable we will understand things more deeply. A Zen, Zen teacher, there was a Zen teacher by the name of Katagiri Roshi who said, the important point is not to try to escape your life, but to face it exactly and completely. This practice includes everything. Don't leave anything out. I get a lot of questions sometimes about how do I find a teacher? It's important to have a teacher. How do I find a teacher? Life is your teacher. Let life be your teacher. I went back to India when I was 24. Um, one, of, one of my first two teachers, speaking of teachers, one of my first two teachers had died. And I realized that if I wanted to see Manindraji again, I needed to go. He was in his 80s. He could go at any point. So I went back and I spent a few months practicing. I three or four Goinka retreats. And um, I got pretty pretty dysregulated. had a very hard time. And um, decided that I needed to head back to the States, some place that was more supportive to, to process all the stuff that had come up. And uh, when I went to say goodbye to Manindraji, I was a me- I was a mess because <laughs> I knew I'd never see him again. You know, he was 88, 87 at the time, and it's you know it's not gonna probably not gonna make it back to India before he dies. And um, so I was crying, said goodbye, gave me some kind of a blessing, and then we walked out of his cottage. I'm still crying and. So I'm walking down. So he starts walking with me and um, kind of turn on the little path, this little flagstone path outside his cottage. He's still kind of walking alongside of me. He was a short Indian man with his white robes. He wore white all the time. And and, um, I turn (laughs) and he turns with me, (laughs) continues walking. And I realize he's going to keep walking with me because he's concerned because I'm still upset and crying. So I stopped. And I turned to him and I said, It's okay, Manindraji. I'll be okay. And he said, Oh, 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 okay, okay. He turned around and went back into his cottage. And then the next steps I took, I could really feel them. It's like, I have to walk this path alone. 
We each have to walk this path for ourselves. No one can do it for us. So I said that this path takes time from one perspective. And from one perspective, that's true. But from another perspective, it's not. From another perspective, the result is immediate. The Dharma's here and now, it's not in the future. So the Four Noble Truths and the reality of the Dharma, the understanding that it represents, is for each of us to know and experience ourselves right here and now. So if you breathe in, you will breathe out. There is not a being on the planet for whom that is not true. If you cling, we will suffer. There is not a being on the planet for whom that is not true. If we let go, we'll experience some peace. We can experience this in any moment, suffering its cause in the end and the way to the end. So each moment that we're awake, each moment that we see clearly is a taste of freedom. So this path can be joyful. It doesn't need to be a slog. <laughs> yeah, it's hard at times, you know. We go through periods where it's dark and swampy. But there can be that sense of appreciation that we found the path through the jungle that we're walking in the right direction. And every moment of mindfulness, every moment of awareness is a moment of freedom. I want to end with a quote from um, a Burmese Sayada, Sayada Ujotika, about this uh, taking joy in the practice. This is from his book, Snow in Summer. I don't want judgment. I want understanding. I am not perfect, so I am scared of those who are judgmental. I've done a lot of unwholesome things in my life, but I don't blame myself or others. I am trying to practice Dhamma, and I'm happy about that. So let's sit together for a moment. <clears throat> 